This week on WealthTrack, the evidence is in. In recent years, passive index funds have been consistently beating the vast majority of actively managed mutual funds. But what about the few who buck the trend? Top performing money managers respond next on Consuelo Mac WealthTrack. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. The first index mutual fund was introduced to the world by Jack Bogle, founder of Vanguard in 1976. What was a trickle of interest then has turned into a tidal wave since. Exchange-traded funds, popularly known as ETFs, weren't launched until 1993. Interest in them has been explosive. Professional and individual investors are voting overwhelmingly in favor of passive index strategies with their portfolios. For the first time ever, ETFs, more than 90% of which are passive index funds, have $1 trillion more money than hedge funds globally. According to the Wall Street Journal, exchange-traded funds surpassed hedge fund assets two years ago, but the trend has accelerated. It is hard to beat the ETF fee discount. The asset-weighted average annual cost for ETFs globally is a quarter of a percent, according to consulting firm ETFGI compared to the traditional charges of 2% on assets and 20% on profits taken by hedge funds, which, by the way, have dramatically underperformed the S&P 500 every year since the 2009 market bottom. Performance is the other key advantage index funds have possessed in recent years. As we reported here before, the recent SPIVA report, the biannual S&P indices versus active scorecard, tracked 15 years of performance of actively managed mutual funds versus the appropriate market indexes. More than 92% of large cap, 95% of mid cap, and 93% of small cap managers trailed their respective benchmarks. Active's underperformance showed up in international stock markets and surprisingly in many fixed income categories as well. Of course, there are always exceptions and we try to find them on WealthTrack. Over the last few months, we've asked a number of our portfolio manager guests, most with exceptional long-term track records, to give us their views on the active versus passive debate. We began with Brian Rogers, until recently the Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of T. Rowe Price. Over the past 20 years during his tenure, 85% of the firm's funds outperformed their benchmarks over multiple rolling five and 10-year periods. And the T. Rowe Price Equity Income Fund, which he ran for 30 years, match the market's performance with much less volatility. Active versus passive debate. It seems like we've reached a critical uh, turning point where, uh, you know, passive has really taken off and in a low return environment, people are looking very closely at fees. Uh, you know, has passive won that debate? Well, I think passive has won the fee debate. Mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. right. it hasn't necessarily won the performance debate. Right. I, I think when I think back to 1982, when I joined T.R. Price, the share of passive in term, total U.S. mutual fund assets is probably single-digit percent. Right. Now it's probably a third. And growing rapidly. Huge growth. Growing right. very rapidly over the last couple of right. years. Um, the more money that's invested passively, the better skilled active investors can do. Because as correlations rise and the same money pours into an index, right. um, uh, specifically the S&P 500, um, the opportunities to cherry pick and excel will increase over time. Mm -hmm. And probably one of the most fertile areas would be S&P companies 501 to 1000. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, arguing if all of the money is flowing into the S&P 500 from plain old passive funds, passive mutual funds, passive ETFs, um, arguably that sector or that, that part of the marketplace, which is very large, 
uh, will be valued much more highly than it might otherwise be, and there might be arbitrage opportunities mm -hmm. to invest elsewhere. The major argument the, for the advocates of passive investing is that, number one, they're very tax efficient because you're investing in an index which isn't being actively managed. Um, and, and also that the, the fees are so low that it's, it, it is such a high bar for active investors to surpass that. You know, I mean, what's your response to that? Mm -hmm. Well, our response is look at, look at our company and look at our data. Right, yep. And again, there, there are no guarantees prospectively, but the opportunity to earn a higher return mm -hmm. than an index, if realized, can have a very, really positive effect on the, on the investor's fortunes. Yep. Um, and even if it's a 50 basis points or a percent a year over a long period of time, uh, that can really be of great benefit to the investor. And, and the, but you think there, there can be a role for passive investing for oh, investors? And so what ab is absolutely. It? What, what's, absolutely. What's the, I mean, where would you assign that role? We have a, a passive fund business at T. Price. It's a small part of our business right. relative to our active business. Mm -hmm. But we offer index fund products right. for defined contribution investors and others. Um, and so it's really a matter of the individual investor's preference. And what does he or she want? Mm -hmm. And is he or she content with a, an index return? And that's fine. Um, there are many other investors who want to do better, and we really cater to that marketplace. Uh, you know, first, I can't um, talk about indexing without a defense of active management, which I believe very much in, and uh, which I think T. Rowe Price's firm has demonstrated one can do well for, for years. And def you in defense of or a defensive active management, or both? <laughs> both, really. Um, I, you know, I think um, you, one must go back and look at history. And I think you need to look at the other periods in time when indexing has been popular. I, the, the, the biggest one, probably, in recent memory would be the tech bubble. Right. Uh, and, you know, you recall in the tech bubble, the 30% of uh, the S&P 500 was invested in tech stocks. Um, well, lo and behold, if you measure the return of the S&P 500 from the top in February of 00 to three years later, it was minus 45%. That interval was a wonderful period for active management. If you go back prior to that, a decade before that, in Japan, um, the Japanese stock market had, had a tremendous move. Right. And, um, and most people who wanted exposure to international markets, professionals I should say, would choose to put a portion of their portfolio uh, and index the, the EFA index, the Europe, Australia, Asia, Far East index. Right. At that time, 60% of that benchmark was in Japanese stocks. If you had bought that benchmark, um, unfortunately, the Japanese stock market fell 85% over the next 20 years. That's the equivalent of a 60% loss in that part of the index. Yeah, and so it's never really recovered. It's not recovered. No. So, um, I, in my view, it's a cyclical thing. Uh, usually, when something becomes very popular on Wall Street, one should be very careful. And um, this passive indexing is really all the rage these days. Um, uh, many stocks, in my view, have more or less uh, um, taken flight from their underlying value. Mm -hmm. And that can happen for a period of time. Um, it certainly happened uh, back in the, uh, you know, in the 80s in Japan and in tech right. stocks in the 90s. Good reminders yeah. for us. If you believe, as I do, that over time, if markets work and capitalism is effective, um, that companies will 
be valued fairly. The market will be efficient. I would submit that um, um, indexing will likely be less popular a few years from now. It's, it's, it's a consensus move, and I can right. only think back to 1989. And, and in 1989, you would have had a period of time uh, when the Nikkei Dao went up with the smoothest position of any, any recorded market in history. And it went up every, every quarter smoothly. It was never volatile. And it, at the top, hit 32,500. Um, uh, subsequently collapsed 75%. Now, all along the way, it was beating all of the uh, active managers. And so um, there's no reason to think that indexation, just because to date, it has generated outstanding returns without stumbling. It'd be as if you were saying in 1992, after the, the three years after 1989 and the Nikkei Dow, that it continued to advance, you could have said there, look, it's been now 40 months worth of steady advance. Um, it's, it's outperformed anything else. Right. Um, but it was getting ever more expensive. <laughs> One of the things I would start with is say that over the 34 years that I've been running Ariel, I've seen ups and downs when it comes to active management versus passive management. Right. Where there's all of a sudden everyone comes convinced that passive is the end all and be all, and eventually that shifts and changes. You know, these things do go in cycles. Now I have to say that this has been the worst I've ever seen mm -hmm. with the amount of energy around. Um, passive management is like I've just never seen before. Mm -hmm. To have Warren Buffett introduce John Bogle at the annual meeting and write about him in the, his annual report is quite unprecedented. Right. But I do think that once everyone becomes convinced that one way is the easy way to make money, and like you said, over 90% of uh, active managers underperforming, once everyone agrees, then it's gonna, the opposite is gonna happen. And it happens because as all that money flows into active, couple things happen. Those assets get really, relatively very expensive. Right. People are buying companies that run those funds for reasons that have nothing to do with underlying fundamentals, but they're going to be buying the biggest, you know, uh, uh, market caps within those indexes. Right, the most expensive, right. I think, I think you know, something like 50% of the S&P 500's performance this year at one point was because of the top five companies, the Apples and the Googles and, right. Exactly. Those top companies that are the biggest companies drive all the performance. Yeah. And I found in my career, whenever people are buying companies for reasons having to do with the fund, for reasons having to do with momentum and not fundamentals, it always ends in a bad way. And I think as you move, have more assets move toward passive, there'll be fewer people doing the work you know, in the active space. And those of us that are still working there will be able to find some terrific bargains of neglected names. And all of a sudden, that's what will create the opportunity for us to outperform again. And people will start to believe and the money will start to flow back. And I do think it is something that maybe it'll take a down market for it to mm -hmm. really become clear. And people will start to realize, geez, you know, these things don't always go up. They go down too and there's no one there sort of you know, manning the steering wheel to make sure that you're protecting assets on the downside. And I think that's where active managers will really shine. You know, one way to defend yourself is to cite studies which show that even index investors underperform the S&P 500. Why do they underperform right. the S&P 500? Because they can't 
stick with the game. They get more enthusiastic at the wrong time, and so they put more money in. They get less enthusiastic at the wrong time, and they t take money out at the wrong time. So it, it, being, in, it, being a, a passive investor doesn't actually make you a better investor than the, than the index. I think that the, uh, you know, the, the best argument for uh, uh, an active manager, particularly in the wealth management business, is that you, you, you have somebody standing bet between your emotions and your money. Uh, and that is sort of of minor importance most of the time, but it can be of major importance when you need it to be. So I, I, I think there's an argument for uh, wealth management and, and uh, a pro professional investor, right? So should the professional investor be an index investor or not? I don't know. I think not, and I, I'll tell you why. You mentioned the, 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 the decline in volatility recently. Mm -hmm. Um, there have been some studies that, sh that, that, that relate the decline of volatility to the prevalence of ETFs because an ETF doesn't sell a stock right. when it has a bad quarter, right? An ETF doesn't sell a stock when there's an implication of you know, wrongdoing or fraud. It doesn't sell a stock when it, when it makes a bad acquisition. An ETF holds that stock Absolutely. because that's a part of the... Uh, so I think if you get to the point where enough of the market is dominated as it increasingly has been, by ETFs and by indices, there's that that when the worm turns, it will turn very badly for these kinds of companies. So you'd, you'd much rather be in a position where you can make a decision about a company, I think, mm -hmm. than have it be on rote. I mean, why would you want to continue to hold a company that you don't that is either way overvalued in your opinion, or where there's a possibility of malfeasance, or where there's you know any any number of reasons right. why you might want to sell, sell stock. So, you know, but it's tough and it's not for everybody. I mean, if, if, you're, if you are a sophisticated enough investor and have a, enough of a distance between you and your emotions, um, I think- Easier can, said than yeah, done. Yeah, easier said than done. Right. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's easier done when you know, the great bulk of the time. You don't need these, these disciplines until you need them. And then mm -hmm. when you need them, you need them very badly. <laughs>
that have in 2015 are about two and a half percent. And you know, you can go through the filings and find it, but it's not easy to find. And that would be on average for the S&P 500. And then the other big expense is that stock buybacks, which most people believe are good for shareholders, have become increasingly used to offset these executive compensation plans. So another 1.6% of the expense of the S&P 500 that's not apparent is in these buyback costs. So we call it look-through expenses because you've got to look through. Right. And if you're a shareholder in an index fund, you own a piece of every company in the S&P 500 if you own. So, so that adds up to 4.1% in these look-through expenses, these indirect expenses that, that you've identified at Wintergreen. Right. You did it because you were doing some work on, uh, on Coke. You were a major shareholder of Coke right. in Wintergreen Fund. How did you get into this? I mean, where, where you, you found all of these indirect expenses. Well, you know, there's a couple things that happened. Is We noticed that things were different in the market and the way that securities were trading and the relationship of value to stock prices. Mm -hmm. And so we started doing research. And then with Coca-Cola, there was a plan to that would have effectively diluted the shareholders substantially. And An executive did. compensation plan that you, that you at Wintergreen fought successfully. Yes. Right. And it was that plan that then gave us the idea that, well, maybe if it's at Coca-Cola, it's elsewhere. Right. And so we started this process and we tried to find you know, a computer program that was out there. It didn't exist. So we had to go by hand through every company of the S&P 500, 10Ks, proxies, all their filings, the, the plans themselves. And we didn't know what we were going to find. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, what we found was that there's 4.1% effectively dilution, look-through expenses, in the S&P 500. Right. So this whole idea that people have that index funds and ETFs are cheap, they're actually very expensive, and the expenses are ballooning over time. And, we and why are they ballooning? Well, you know, what happens is the executive compensation goes up. Right. And the buybacks have gone up to offset it. So it's not, you know, uh, it doesn't hurt the reported earnings quite as much. And, you know, we're all for management getting paid, right. but we believe, you know, this should be totally transparent. And it's created this distortion in the markets that people basically are all flocking to index funds and they don't understand that they're expensive. And then we believe they're quite risky mm -hmm. because the way the market weight works of index funds, what goes up has to be purchased in greater and greater size. The high risk is that there's a huge concentration, which you call, you call them Fang and Friends. Yeah. And so we've done the, you know, the Facebook and the Amazon and the Netflix, but you're saying that with the Friends, there are 10 stocks essentially that, um, that dominate uh, the, the, the market cap of the index funds of the S&P 500, and that you're owning many more of those uh, percentage-wise than you really want to. Well, really what's happened is those securities have um, dominated the returns in the markets. Right. And so the index funds have to just keep buying more and more of them so they become more and more of the index. So instead of this diversification, you end up with concentration. So you end up with high fees and concentration in you know, hyper-growth stocks. And the history of hyper-growth stocks um, at some point, they may not grow quite as fast.
as the Motley Fool's mission is to help us become better investors, why would you, the first piece of advice be to buy an index fund? Well, because I think it's the greatest uh, financial offering that's ever been created. I mean, I believe that Jack Bogle is probably had the biggest impact on investors of any person in human history, um, far greater than Warren Buffett's impact. And I'm a huge Warren Buffett fan, obviously, but uh, the size and scope of what Vanguard has created and other indexing alternatives that have come after is awesome and transformative. And it's the cheapest way, the most tax efficient way to get exposure and diversification in your portfolio. So uh, it's a great place to start. And even though it could stop you from doing business with the Motley Fool. We're the first ones to say, if you want to end there, if you just want to index, that's great. And we have fulfilled our purpose of helping the world invest better by getting you into that great solution first. Yeah. So for, for many people, again, quoting you, active investing is not worth trying even. Why, why not? Why isn't it even worth trying for many people? Well, uh, many people aren't interested in the subject. So that would be the first reason. Many people just, this is like dental work to them more than a great adventure in learning and understanding business and capitalism and how to allocate capital and manage risk and learn about your temperament. For many people, this is something they're not actually doing. So a number of people are going into retirement with far less money than they're, right. they're going to need given medical technology and how long they could live. So I, I'd say if active investing requires that you spend time and think about things, uh, for many people, that's not a good that's not a good approach. So, what is better about buying an index fund, especially considering that everyone else is doing it now mm. too? And one of the things that you know, great investors are usually contrarian thinkers; they're mm. independent. So here you are, saying, mm. "Do what the herd's doing." Mm. It's, it's it's pathetic, really. It's, it is there's pathetic. No, there's no intellectual curiosity to it at all. Yeah. I'd say that the number one reason is because the fees are so low. So when you're going to actively manage funds, you're paying 50 basis points, uh, 100, you're paying 1% per year, right. let's say, on that fund. Those funds are trading um, well more than 100% of their assets each year. Mm -hmm. So you're getting tax hits that are not published and should be. Um, mutual funds should be required to publish their after-tax returns for people so that we can see what's really happening there. So the index fund, by virtue, I mean, it's essentially like what Amazon is doing to the retail industry. That's what's happening. Uh, sure, you can have some more colorful experiences by getting your car and driving out to a store and all the rest, but you get a broader selection, you get better convenience, you get lower prices, you get home delivery from Amazon, and that sort of convenience is what Vanguard is doing to the financial industry. And, and one more question is, as far as what's happening with the indexing. If, if, if you look at this year, for instance, 53% of the gains in the S&P 500 were driven by five stocks. And, and the <coughs> stocks, you know, this is their all tech stocks hmm. and their Apple, you know, Alphabet, uh, Microsoft, Amazon, and Facebook. So they accounted for 53% of the S&P 500's hmm. gains this year. Hmm. That is concentration. Does that concern you? Well, I mean, at first it feels good not to hug myself, but at The Motley Fool, we've owned a lot of those stocks for right. a very long period of time. And you know that our orientation is to buy stocks and hold them for five to 10 years. So they've been great investments. Do I think that those are the great investments of the future, the next five and 10 baggers that somebody can put in their portfolio and sit back and enjoy? I don't. Do I think that they're going to be poor performers over the next five to 10 years? I don't think so, but I don't think these are the great investments of the future now because of the size of those businesses. So it is concerning. 
At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point picks up on what Tom Gardner said. It is used passive and active to your comfort levels. If you have no interest in investing, go with index mutual funds or ETFs. Just make sure you are broadly diversified globally and by asset class. That means including some safe haven non-correlated investments like treasury bonds and gold in the mix. If you are like most of us, combine the two with a core position in a broad global stock index fund and satellite positions in actively managed mutual funds and specialties such as small cap value, high growth tech, global bonds, or real estate. The third way is the traditional actively managed mutual fund approach, again combining broad global and asset class diversification. Whatever you decide, recognize that we have far more investment choices than we have ever had, which is a blessing and a curse. Maybe a robo-investment plan is worth considering after all. To see this program again and other WealthTrack interviews, please go to our website, WealthTrack.com. Also, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for watching. Have a lovely Labor Day weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.